Welcome to the Advocacy Podcast, Journeys to Excellence. We speak with Queen's Council, trial lawyers and judges from around the world about how they excel in the courtroom. Please subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and visit us for additional resources at theadvocacypodcast.com. I'm your host, BB Badejo. Welcome back to the second of this two-part interview of Jerry Blackwell and Steve Slesher, lead prosecutors of George Floyd's murder by Derek Chauvin. In part one, we heard about Jerry and Steve's journeys in law, from the starts of their careers up to their work on this historic trial. We also heard about their approach to the preparation and planning for the court case. In this episode, we move on to discuss their advocacy and the witnesses during the trial itself. We'll jump back in with our discussion about pulmonologist and physician Dr. Martin Tobin. He was a star witness for the prosecution and very impressive. Let's listen to what one of the jurors said about him in a later interview. Which witnesses won your mind? Yeah, um, there was no question it was Dr. Tobin. Uh, when he got on the stand and his entire testimony was just, to me it was just phenomenal because he broke everything down um, scientifically, but in a way that was easy to understand, easy to follow, I mean, easy to even take notes on to even refer back to. Mm-hmm. And it just made, it, it was like, to me, it was like, that, that's the period at the end of the sentence where it's like, wow, I don't know how the defense would be able to come back from that because that was really good. Right. As a trial lawyer, I know that wasn't easy. It looked like an effortless conversation between you, Jerry, and Dr. Tobin, where, you know, you're just asking a few questions. Anyone can do that. And look, he's just explaining and it's so clear and so on and so forth. But from what I know from preparing my own cases, there was so much detail. Your questions were so precise. The information was incremental, which meant that there was no one that did not understand what Dr. Tobin was saying. Firstly, is this an area that you are familiar with? In some some ways, uh, I was. I mean, since I started in the practice uh, of law, I've always had a, a docket of cases that are at the intersection of medicine and law. And I have tried cases where the fundamental issues were either, you know, pulmonology or cardiology or toxicology. I've tried cases on just about every body system and causes of various cancers and so that backdrop was familiar. The specifics of this case in terms of what causes asphyxia, how the various uh, body systems interact and relate to that, that was all new uh, and had to learn it. And what did you do in order to learn that? Because, of course, I know that you're familiar with some medical language, but there are new elements here. How did you prepare and study for that so that you were able to have such a smooth and fluid conversation with the pulmonologist? It was a, a lot of intense study. And so my MO usually is that I try to first find the version that looks like uh, medicine for dummies. And so just tell me if it's pictures, all the better. And that with little simple captions, because I know what a knee is. I know what an ankle is. I have those. And I don't know how the knee bone is connected to the ankle bone. And so I want to understand it fundamentally, basically first, just kind of tell me big picture. You know, you can either talk about a, a compound uh, fracture with uh, surrounded by granulomatous tissue, or you can talk about it being simply a broken leg. Both are true, but you've got to understand the science at a molecular level in a way to be able to pan the camera back and discuss it kind of in a macro level that ordinary people can get and understand and have both of them to be accurate. So 
That to me is studying the text, is reading the peer-reviewed articles and literature, and it is having a phenomenal team. You saw Aaron Eldridge in the trial, but beyond Aaron, the ones you didn't see, the Mary Youngs, the Lola Velasquez Aguilus, the Corey Gordons, who worked with the medical experts, including Dr. Tobin, to translate uh, Dr. Tobin. He's a phenomenal witness, no, no question there. Personable, knowledgeable, but in his raw form, he was not ready to uh, present to a jury that way. He would strongly disagree with that, I'm certain, Dr. Tobin would, but that's why he's not the lawyer. And, uh, <laughs> and so we had to translate it, to slow it down, bite-sized pieces, and BB, I mean, I grew up in very much working class um, environment in North Carolina, and, and I don't think there was a white collar in any direction that I could see where I grew up. And so my standard usually is, if the people I grew up with wouldn't understand what you're talking about in this case, then it's got to get simplified. And, and if a lawyer says, well, it can't be made any simpler, I said, the jurors are going to make it simpler. So are you going to help them and be a part of that discussion or not? So we've got to make it plainer, got to make it simpler. And that was true here. You see, we didn't really talk that much about asphyxia. We talked about low oxygen, uh, for example. I mean, if you want to talk about anoxic seizures, I didn't go on and on about what an anoxic seizure is, a paraganglioma, and so on. I know what they are. I understand it. But to talk about it in terms that the jurors will simply get, common terms, as an advocacy point for any of the artists in trial advocacy on the phone, the research I have seen says that anytime a lawyer uses a word or a phrase that the jurors do not understand, you lose about the next seven seconds of the jurors' attention. As they sit there and then it's like the, uh, the little hourglass on the computer spinning around. Like, what was that word? And they didn't hear what you said. And if you have a whole argument that's full of that, then they just simply tuned you out. So the need to study was to me paramount. I figured the expert on cross could be particularly tricky. And if you're not precise in your language, every degree of imprecision will be a pathway for that expert just to run on you and to flip on you. So understanding that was critical, and I think having very sharp, pointed questions critical, and insisting on getting the answers to your questions, if it's a yes or no, to find a way to politely bring them back to the fact that it's a yes or no question. Yeah, so you did that really effectively with Dr. Fowler, which I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about. But just going back to Dr. Tobin, there was something he did on two separate occasions, which I thought was incredibly effective, which was he introduced the sense of touch to the jurors. And he was explaining about the back of the neck. And he said, well, touch the back of your neck. And he started explaining what they'd be feeling or touching their throat and above their Adam's apple. And I admit that I was actually doing it because I wanted to understand what he was saying. So it wasn't just a matter of hearing and seeing. I was now also touching. Was that something that he came out with or was that as part of you teaching through him so that he could get his words and, of course, the senses through to jury? How did that come about? It's a technique and approach I, I like to try to use uh, in, in any given trial is to try to find a way to give the jury an actual experience. If a picture is worth a thousand words, one experience is worth a thousand pictures. And so here he's trying to explain where the hypopharynx is, you know. So here's now in a normal pre-COVID world, it would have been perfectly appropriate to have had a, a life-size dummy there. The jurors can then kind of stand up and be able to see where different forces would have been put on the body of the dummy and then how it affects the body systems. We couldn't do that because of COVID. Nobody can move around that way. 
So how do you engage the jurors in a way that gives them kind of the hands-on science experience? That was it. That you can kind of hear buttons this collar and uh, you can kind of feel here the hypothetics. And um, that was my answer. So he gets them to feel around there. And it's a way of getting the jurors uh, engaged with the science. And it takes some of the speculation out of what it is you're referring to. There was an objection to our doing this. Yes. And it made, to me, all the sense in the world, instead of having people guess what you mean by the hypopharynx, everybody's got one. That he can use this technique to be able to have jurors understand anatomically what and where he's talking about. And that was... um I thought, an effective way of engaging the jurors. Definitely. And this is just slightly away from Dr. Tobin, but I also noticed that you introduced a sensory experience when you were introducing Dr. Tobin. You were asking him about the books and the articles that he had written. And then you picked up this massive tomb and said like, this, this book? (laughs) So it wasn't just a sense of, oh yeah, yeah, he's written a book, blah, 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 blah. You actually got to see this massive thing that he had written. And it seemed to me that lent credibility and gravitas to who he was as an expert. So is that something that you commonly employ as well? Yeah, no, that is. And it's intentional. Like I said, it's all advocacy and sometimes you use words. But holding up a big tome like that, you think, you know, I don't know what's in that book. But that looks like one big, heavy book. And boy, he seems to have quite a resume and it makes a different impression when you see a book that big. And it really was uh, heavy too. And it's, it was the Bible on uh, mechanical uh, ventilation. So I wanted to be able to show that for the jurors to see that. And I have it right there in case we need to refer to it. Although I suspect the only reference I'm going to make is to show it to you. Well, look at this gigantic book. Now, in terms of techniques that you use to control the witnesses that you were cross-examining, and I use Dr. Fowler as an example, what would you say that you employed there? Because I thought that you had him under, uh, I'll say a, sh- a short leash, I don't mean to be rude, but he was he, very much in control. He wasn't able to go rambling off and introducing things that you weren't interested in. He was going to answer your question and that was the end of it. So what techniques did you use to make sure that that happened? He was a, a big deal witness. I mean, you know, Steve talked about us, how we divvied up and he focused on use of force and and, and be the, the medical case. And, and I, I do like to... To joke, I did the medical case because I don't think Steve likes the medical case to work on. He's like, oh, <laughs> you know, don't mention periganglioma to me, you know, periganglioma back to you. And uh, uh, so, <laughs> so, um, but yeah, take it on. And I thought that they probably felt they're going to make their most hay on the medical case because they can uh, point to uh, the drug use, uh, the comorbidities, the heart issues, um, of a sickle cell trait to you name it and add all that up together. And the argument that he had an overlay of stress unrelated to what happened during the 929, then who can really say that this was the cause or a substantial factor in causing his death? And that the person who's going to carry this for them was Dr. Fowler. So I had to be, I think, careful to approach him in a very sequential way. And to start trying to pull the bricks away from the wall, kind of one at a time. And with the hope that when he's finished, it's just a pile of bricks left from what he has uh, told the jury. So I wanted to keep him tight. I wanted to box him in with texts that he said were authoritative for starters. And once he admitted that, there were several things you could say I wanted to ask him right from the training textbooks uh, that were contrary to what he had just said. I had a transcript, one, from a prior case of his that I wanted to keep him on a short leash. He didn't fight me too much over the transcript 
stuff because he knew I had it. And he knew, I think, what would come next. So he just basically gave that up when he knew what I'm reading something and I'm going to show it to you in a minute if you want me to. And on the front end, you know, I talk about all the things he wasn't. You're not a radiologist. You're not a this. You're not a that. And there's a name for that, which uh, BBL learned from you, that there's, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, empty space? Or what do you, what do you call Negative it? Negative space. Yeah, see, that's it. Look at that. <laughs> yeah, we're learning all the time. <laughs> Find a way to use negative space and didn't even know. Oftentimes with experts, some of them are so good. They have way more trial experience than all the lawyers in the courtroom, sometimes combined because they've testified in similar cases for decades. And this is how they made millions of dollars and, and they are pros. That's not saying it's not follow, but I have cases where I'm up against experts like that. Uh, and they will absolutely eat your lunch if you give them a chance to sneeze and, uh, and they will run on you and, and will just get out of control. So in his case, I thought the first things that jurors may want to know is not what did you say, but who's talking? Who's talking? What is his background? What is he or what isn't he? So that if later on he's given opinions about automotives, exhaust from hybrid vehicles, don't see his background qualifies him to say much about that. And where does his expertise begin and end? So I will do that quite often on the front end in the negative Negative space. space. Yes. (laughs) Right. Let's kind of start at the macro, kind of who are you, what do you do? And what don't you do? And now I'm going to get right into the specifics, opinions that you've espoused here in this case and what foundation you had for espousing and start picking that apart. If you want to tell the jury that you can see when they approach the car that he is, uh, appear to be drugs in his mouth, uh, that he's trying to ingest. Well, you said that. And so I do want to kind of take you back to the store where you see him chewing gum and you see the same white gum in his mouth in the store. After he left the store, he went right to the car. Well, you know, you said that was drugs. Well, no, I didn't really say it was drugs. I thought, well, I'll let you, you know, I think the jurors heard what they heard. I know what I heard. And it's fair enough if you would like to run away from the suggestion that you at least were suggesting that. But it, it's trying to get his credibility uh, when it's finished. So I, I would like a, a witness like like a Dr. Fowler for the jurors have gotten the truth about the issues that he raised but also for them to have a number of questions about to what extent they believe and trust him as an expert to talk about the evidence. And so that was the objective of the cross, was to get the truth out and to challenge his credibility. Steve, one of the most entertaining moments was, for me anyway, was the cross-examination of the retired federal and state law enforcement officer, Barry Broad. He's an expert in police training and the use of force. I read an article which described this cross-examination, or rather Barry's Broad's testimony, as an overall disaster for the defence. The article goes on to say the danger in presenting a defence case, especially in a prosecution that is so video-dependent, is that it allows the prosecutor, through leading questions on cross-examination, to walk witnesses through the video explaining to the jury moment by moment exactly what the prosecution's theory of the case is. If he does this skillfully, the prosecutor turns his questioning into the equivalent of a summation. Suffice it to say that Steve Slisher did it very skillfully on behalf of the state. Slisher blew Broad's testimony to bits. The conclusion of the article is the objective of a defence case is supposed to be the creation of reasonable doubt not the removal of all doubt. Now, that's some high praise there. So congratulations. Now, 
<laughs> what I was interested in is another thing that article said is that you had a field day when you were cross-examining Mr. Broad. Did you have a field day? I did enjoy myself during that examination, I will confess, yes. And how did you prepare it? Because again, so sharp, you didn't give him any leeway whatsoever. So how did you approach preparing this? So for the broad uh, testimony, uh, just like anything else, I learned as much as I could about uh, Mr. Broad. And the advantage we have now, I suppose, with Google and, and being connected as we are, I was able to do quite a bit of research and feel not just to know what he said, but know uh, in the past, but know who he was, uh, what he looked like, what uh, his mannerisms were. I was able to watch a prior cross-examination, direct examination of him in another case. And I did quite a bit of research. I had a couple of partners, uh, Stephanie Laws and David Suchar from my office, helped me put together an examination outline and really focus on what he'd said before that could support my case. You know, we talked about themes earlier in preparing a cross-examination and conducting a cross-examination. You hear about uh, all these things, uh, rules, commandments, uh, whatever you want to call them. I'll call it advice. I think that for me, the prime directive is um, always advance your theme. Whether they call the witness or I call the witness, uh, I want to always advance my theme. And I felt that Mr. Broad, based on who he was and uh, what he had said before, I could use him to advance my theme. I also saw an opportunity there to exploit really a prime weakness of his opinion. You know, we can't even have a conversation if we can't agree on certain terms. If we talk about walking my dog, if I ask you if you want to go uh, walk my dog and you look at my dog and tell me it's a cat, we're going to have a fundamental disagreement and cats are not walkable at all, right? And so we can't even uh, get out the door. And uh, Mr. Broad in his examination tried to define a way. You didn't need to believe your eyes. This wasn't excessive force because it wasn't a use of force at all. And so how was he able to say that, right? He was able to say that by um, looking at a certain provision in the Minneapolis uh, Police Department policies and procedures that say that a hold, you know, a simple hold is not technically a use of force if it's not a hold that would cause pain. And so when you think of what then he was saying is that Mr. Floyd wasn't in pain. And there is uh, something that I felt that no reasonable person could look at this, could see this, could feel this, and, and agree with them. And so I knew that that was a, a pretty significant area to exploit. And I felt that I'd done enough research uh, with Mr. Broad that I kind of knew where he was going to go. We had the advantage of all of this video, right? You know, uh, it, it was right there. And I think that, you know, contrasting the result in uh, George Floyd's case, as opposed to Rodney King's case, which there was also a video, the theme of that defense was don't believe your eyes. And we knew that. We knew that going in. Believe your eyes. You saw what you saw. <laughs> this is murder. Don't let them talk you out of it. And so in structuring Barry Broad's cross-examination, I had at the ready segments and video clips in which uh, we would be able to go point by point and show the excessive force. And he would have to look at it just as the jury was looking at it and try to tell them that they didn't just see what they saw, 
And we knew that was going to be difficult for him. And so he then tried to define his way out of the problem. And um, I felt that I could ask him some open-ended questions. I could break some of these commandments. I could break some of these rules. You know, I love that. You can ask an open-ended question of an expert witness if there's no good answer <laughs> to the question. So it's not that I didn't care about the answer. It's not, it wasn't a throwaway. I wasn't trying to warm up. I'm very much um, mindful of the juror's time. But there is no good answer to that question. And so when I asked him, what is it about this that's not compliant? And showing him the, the video, what is it about this that's not compliant? That's when uh, he said, and that's an open question, right? And, and he said, well, a perfectly compliant person would have their arms behind their back, resting in the, in the small of their back and be just resting comfortably. And... Um, I just kind of let that hang out there. And in fact, asked him to repeat it. Did I just hear you say it? Do you really just say that? Resting comfortably. He should be resting comfortably. And in that moment, because I gave him this room to explain himself, which is something there's no good explanation, he, uh, he really uh, cross-examined himself, didn't he? Uh, he really impeached his own credibility. He certainly did. And I noticed that instead of easing in and asking some very gentle questions, the way sometimes we do approach witnesses, you went straight in for the attack and started to undermine the fundamental premise that he had ended his direct examination with, which is namely that the defendant's conduct was not a, a use of force because that position's not likely to inflict pain. And I think within, I think it was within 10 minutes he'd conceded that Mr. Floyd had suffered pain at the time. So why did you decide to go straight in for the attack, if you don't mind me using that phrase, instead of easing in? Well, I tried to do it respectfully and, and be respectful. But if we can't uh, even agree that my dog isn't a cat, then we can't go for a walk, right? And so without phase one, and that is, was this a use of force? We can't get to phase two. Was this excessive? He doesn't even have to answer that question. And so... A lot of it was about defining terms. You know, there was a lot of activity that led up to George Floyd being on the ground. And then there were a lot of things that happened after he was taken away. But the essence of the case, when we say, was this wrong? What is the this? What is the this? We have to define the this. And so we, we use a couple of shortcuts to get us there. So that we're, let's all talk about the same thing. And so first, I want to put an image in your mind. If you go back and Google this, uh, you can see uh, Google uh, Chauvin trial exhibit 17. Exhibit 17 is the this. That's the excessive force. That is the point at which um, there's a capture of a still image of the defendant with his knee on George Floyd's neck and his back prone restraint on the ground uh, on top of him. That's the excessive force. So when we talk about what did they do wrong, this is the thing that we're saying did wrong, that they did wrong. Then the other device was the 929. You know, it wasn't just that he was on top of him for a little bit. This wasn't a transitory position, which of course is okay. That's authorized to be on someone like this in a very, very short transitory way to gain control. You can do that. But nine minutes and 29 seconds is preposterous. And so we needed to show him exhibit 17 and talk about the length of time. So once we get to the point where he's conceded, and it was important for him to concede that uh, this was a use of force, 
Now we can go to the next question. Okay, now that we agree that this was a use of force, let's talk about whether or not this use of force was excessive. And so it was important to go there. It was also important, you might notice an interaction that we had where at the beginning, it, may, it might have seemed like a small point, but he really wanted to avoid stating what was plainly true, that the defendant was on top of Mr. Floyd. He wouldn't agree with that proposition. And this is the part about uh, advice for an advocate is you can't be afraid of embarrassing yourself. It's an uncomfortable situation when you're talking to someone and they're kind of gaslighting you and they want to go on to a different thing and they haven't answered your question and you have to go back and they still won't answer it and they still won't answer it. But that was a point I wasn't going to let uh, go away. And I think that that's important because one, it's something pretty easy to see. I mean, it was right there. I had it in the projector right in front of him. There was a still image. I'm circling it. The jury can see it. They know that he knows, right? But he just wouldn't answer it. But I think it's important sometimes to insist on him telling the truth, on answering the question, because that, that's going to set you up. It's a conditioning that's going to set you up for later so that he understands if I ask him a tough question later, you might as well just answer it because I'm not going to stop. I'm going to literally sit there and ask you the same question the same way until either you answer it or, you know, the judge gives me the shepherd's hook and uh, pulls me away. I thought it was important to let's let's just set this now. And I, I'm going to be respectful. I'm not going to holler at you, but you're not going to tell this jury not to believe their eyes, to say that that isn't what we uh, absolutely see it to be. And Mr. Rodwood certainly was evasive at times. Quite often his answers were, it could. Was it painful? Oh, it could be. Was it this? Oh, it could. And we'll play a clip now, a demonstration of how you were able to effectively control this witness. And so looking then at Exhibit 17 and just starting with the fundamental uh, premise of your testimony that what we're seeing here is not a use of force, I need to ask you, if you believe that it is unlikely that orienting yourself on top of a person on the pavement with both legs is unlikely to produce pain? It could. What do you mean it could? Is it unlikely to produce pain or is it likely to produce pain? I'm saying it could produce pain. It could? Yes. Uh, and if it could produce pain, then, again, just looking at your premise, if it could produce pain, then it would be a use of force, wouldn't it? If the officer's intent was to inflict pain, that Not would be use of force? Not the officer's intent, sir. What you said is that it was unlikely to produce pain, and that's why it wasn't a use of force. You now just said that it could produce pain, and so... Regardless of the officer's intent, if this act that we're looking at here in Exhibit 17 could produce pain, would you agree that what we're seeing here is a use of force? Shown in this picture, that could be a use of force. Okay. I think that's a masterclass on controlling witnesses. <laughs> so thank you so much for that, Steve. I now want to move over to the area of word selection because 
it's obviously such an important area, like the words that we use during trials, like what they can trigger in the minds of jurors or judges. There were a couple of things I noticed about the defence. For example, referring to the bystanders as a crowd. Now, I understand the theory was that Mr Chauvin had to look out for this crowd because they posed a threat. But when you looked at the videos, it was a group of people, not closely together, not threatening, not encroaching on the space. And I kind of thought that that the use of the word crowd possibly backfired because it didn't represent what you could see in terms of the evidence. And then the second thing that I wondered about was the adoption of the phrasing that you had used as prosecuting lawyer. And we've got the 929. I wouldn't have used it ever. I wouldn't even have gone near it. I would not have used your phrases. I would not have said 929 at all. But there's one point in the defence closing argument where he repeats it five times. And I thought, why would you do that? Because it completely undermined what he was saying, which in effect was, it's not about 929. There's so much more that went on before that that you need to be cognizant of. Here's a clip of defence counsel, followed by a clip of your closing, Steve. And so we get into the nine minutes and 29 seconds at this point. And the state has really focused on the nine minutes and 29 seconds. Nine minutes, 29 seconds. Nine minutes, 29 seconds. It's not the proper analysis. Because the nine minutes and 29 seconds ignores the previous 16 minutes and 59 seconds. It completely disregards it. Nine minutes and 29 seconds. Nine minutes and 29 seconds. During this time, George Floyd struggled, desperate to to breathe, to make enough room in his chest to breathe. But the force was too much. He was, he was trapped. He was trapped with the unyielding pavement underneath him, as unyielding as the men who held him down, pushing him, a knee to the neck, a knee to the back, twisting his fingers, holding his legs for nine minutes and 29 seconds, the defendant's weight on him. So there we are. We've got two contrasting clips here of the closing arguments. Were you aware that by the way that you had framed your case and your closing argument, that not only would that nine minutes and 29 seconds resonate with the jury, it would actually filter in to the defendant's closing argument? I knew he had to address it. I knew that we needed to phrase it that way, the 929 because really everything that happened beforehand is just there to muddy the waters, right? In terms of really looking at the use of force, you know, George Floyd was suspected and never convicted. Of course, he didn't get a trial. He didn't get that opportunity. He wasn't presumed innocent. He was suspected of buying cigarettes with a fake $20 bill. That's what started the call. That's what this was about, okay? In your custody means in your care. And uh, people are suspected of a whole lot worse than stealing uh, some cigarettes with a fake $20 bill. You think of the range of crimes in which people are arrested, 
taken into custody and safely delivered uh, to a jail, even if they resist, even if they struggle with some mental health issues, even if they have some things that make it so they just aren't able to be perfectly compliant at all times. This happens all the time. Minneapolis Police Department take people into custody all the time. They deal with persons in crisis all the time, every day. They're trained on that, right? And so anything that happened the 16 minutes before, the, the time after, really, that wasn't what we were saying was the wrongful use of force. The wrongful use of force was the combination of what you saw in Exhibit 17 going on for nine minutes and 29 seconds. And it was important for us to keep the main thing the main thing and to hammer that over and over and to develop sort of that shortcut. I wouldn't have to describe the scene of Derek Chauvin with his glasses perched on his head, his hand near his pocket, looking at the camera with that look on his face, the look of pure agony on George Floyd's face as he cried out. As he was on top of him. I didn't have to say that only one time. All I had to say was Exhibit 17. Right? We created that language, that connection with the jury. Now we have a shortcut where, like in any organization that you're a part of, you have acronyms, you have things, you know, you have, whether it's in your family or in a workplace, you have different ways of speaking of things that are going to quickly get you to that concept. That's what Exhibit 17 was. That's what the 929 was. That was the important part to communicate. They talk about word choice. Um, the angry mob, right? The angry mob, the crowd. We chose a different word. We chose bystander. You know, you think of certain words that go together, mansion, you think of dilapidated mansion, probably why you shouldn't buy one, right? What word do you associate with bystander? What are bystanders? Innocence looking. Bystanders. Yeah. That's right. Of course they are. Bystanders are innocent. These are innocent bystanders. And so we just say bystanders. Because, of course, that's what they were. They were bystanders. They were witnesses. This was a crime that happened in their backyard. That word choice is important. I didn't learn that from a class. I didn't learn that um, from another lawyer. I learned it from a paralegal. As we were traveling early in my career, I used to work for the attorney general's office just on the circuit doing murder cases in the different counties in Minnesota. And I was talking to her about the case, as I do, and I'm excited about the case. And I talked about how, well, you know, this person, uh, you know, after the fight, these people really uh, ramped it up. Uh, they, they, they just went too far after this fight. And we talked about the fight. And she looked at me and she was uh, a person who probably had watched more trials and supported more trials than any lawyer you'll ever meet. It's seen a variety of styles in many cases. And she said, Steve... May just make a suggestion to you. And I said, sure. She said, why do you keep calling it a fight? A fight would be mutual. This wasn't a fight. This was an attack. And you really need to be careful about the way you say things. And, and I thought about that. And of course, she was absolutely right. I was describing something inaccurately, not only uh, using poor advocacy skills, just incorrect. And I thought about that. I never referred to it as a fight again. It was an attack in which the victim suffered injury and was eventually killed. And so you can learn advocacy from so many different sources, but you actually have to listen to people and you have to check your ego at the door and develop a thick skin and be receptive to hear uh, people talk to you and, and give you some notes. 
in the closing, the notion of comparing the pavement to uh, the defendant, you know, holding him down. That, that of course, was a device to show, you know, kind of a callousness that was there, that you expect this of the inanimate object, but not those who are uh, supposed to protect with courage and serve with compassion, right? And, and I thought that the imagery, and, and I really, um, it was the medical testimony that made me realize just the how George died as a function of being squeezed to death between two unrelenting objects. And I wanted to have a more lyrical way of being able to express that. Another thing I wanted to push back against was this whole notion of superhuman strength. And you hear about, um, you know, superhuman strength, and sometimes people can have superhuman strength. And what would happen, you have to restrain this person because they could get superhuman strength and, and go off on some kind of a rampage. And the problem is, of course, uh, certainly people under the influence can exhibit uh, strength. People under stress can exhibit unexpected strength. What you saw, though, on the video was that if he had superhuman strength, he certainly wasn't using it. He was talking to the officers. He was telling them he was in pain. He was begging them to get off of him. And so not only was this not an example of it, but the word, the term superhuman, it doesn't really mean superhuman better than human. It means not human. That's what it means. That's the trouble I have with it. There's no such thing as a superhuman. We're all humans. And we all feel pain. And to deny that somebody could feel pain under these circumstances doesn't acknowledge their humanity. To call someone superhuman means that you're otherizing them and you don't need to treat them as you yourself would be treated. And you understand that you feel pain. Right. And so um, that, that troubled me. And I wanted to take that on. It's a comic book fantasy, a superhuman. It's something, it's a piece of fiction that's made up. It's not real. And so uh, George was real. He was a man and he felt pain. And, and this was excessive force. And it resulted in his death and that made it murder. Uh, and that needed to be plainly said and taken on. The final thing that you said in your closing argument was so direct. And I think that's why it has so much force. This case is exactly what you thought when you saw it first. When you saw that video, it is exactly that. You can believe your eyes. It's exactly what you believed. It's exactly what you saw with your eyes. It's exactly what you knew. It's what you felt in your gut. It's what you now know in your heart. This wasn't policing. This was murder. The defendant is guilty of all three counts. All of them. Are you usually so direct when you're finishing? Because I thought I'm not. <laughs> but that was, I'm going to take that on, certainly. It was brilliant. It's a clear ask. I need to tell them exactly. I hoped that through the trial and my questioning of witnesses, uh, my repeating of evidence, uh, hopefully accurately being respectful, that I'd built a credibility that I could make that ask. Uh, we were asking the jury to find a police officer guilty of murder. And whatever you think of the, the evidence uh, in this case, my view being pretty clear, it's still a hard thing to ask. We're programmed from a very early age 
to trust the police, to believe the police, to be deferential, to believe that they're there to help us. We tell toddlers, if there's an emergency and your mother and father can't help you, you know, call the police. If somebody's following you in the car and, and you're worried, uh, you drive to a police station. I mean, these are messages that go. And so I don't care what the evidence is. It's hard to overcome. And so we need to make that ask. And I think that, you know, the don't believe your eyes, believe your eyes, this was murder comes from the opportunity. And you heard it in the defense theme that they'd say, you know, sometimes policing isn't pretty. Sometimes law enforcement has to, they have to do things that when you look at it to the untrained eye, you don't have the same training to the untrained eye. It looks pretty awful. And what we needed to tell them is that, no, this is exactly what you thought it was the first time you looked at it. You knew it. You knew it. it you, you just felt it. You knew it in your head. And now you know it's true because we've told you what the rules are. We told you what the rules of engagement. There is no excuse. This was not policing. This was murder. And that's why he's guilty of all counts. And that's my ask. And I felt that to in any way uh, be indirect about it hurts me. It's acknowledging how hard it is to ask and say, no, this is actually quite easy. You need to trust yourself. Don't let them explain it away. This is not policing. And again, I'm persuaded. <laughs> Very eloquent. Jerry, another thing that I have noticed, certainly when I was listening to you delivering the opening, the rebuttal, your questions, and also in this interview is that you have a way with words. <laughs> There's always a brilliant phrase which absolutely encapsulates what you want to say and conveys what it is that you mean. And I noted that there were some really quite phenomenal phrases that you used, one being that when you address the jury during the, your rebuttal, we're going to play a clip of that. You were told, um, for example, that Mr. Floyd died, that Mr. Floyd died because his heart was too big. You heard that testimony. And now having seen all the evidence, having heard all the evidence, you know the truth. And the truth of the matter is that the reason George Floyd is dead is because Mr. Chauvin's heart was too small. How did you come up with that? Where did that come from? It's so effective. Probably from my Southern United States upbringing truth be told, and, um, and I consider it just a gift, frankly, in that most of the things I talk about, I usually see pictures first. And when I use analogies, I just to speak to the picture I just saw. And when I thought about this case, that was the picture that came to mind, given all their focus on his heart issues, his high blood pressure, the narrowing of the arteries, and focus on his heart, his heart, when if Mr. Chauvin had the heart of a nine-year-old girl, little girl. George Floyd would still be alive. And it just went, ah, that's it. And um, um, and so I went to the team, went to the workshop, and uh, and the team has said, that is the line you should end on. And um, so I did, but it just seemed to capture, to me, the whole case. It captured the use of force. It captured the causation. It captured the callous indifference. It captured it all. And it captured the idea that they're trying to make George Floyd the focal point. Uh, when uh, there wasn't anything that George Floyd had on the date he was killed, no condition he hadn't lived with for years and years and years. And, and what was different was what happened in that nine minutes and 29 seconds. 
believe your eyes. He had brought it all back to that. But the imagery, whether it is uh, that phrase or whether it's talking about bouquet of humanity or any other phrases like that, they're just the pictures that come. And so you just uh, put them into words because that's what I see. And then you sort of translate it into the images that you see. I think that's maybe Southern because the people I grew up with all speak that way all the time. <laughs> so I'm jealous. <laughs> no, no, you can you can come visit. You know? And he also mentioned, you know, if he'd had the heart of, of a nine-year-old. And again, in your rebuttal, you mentioned that, even, you know, this is common sense. In fact, a child can understand it. When the nine-year-old girl said, get off, that's how simple it was. It was just a matter of common sense. So again, is that a matter of just, it just came straight to you because this is a picture that was in your mind and you were trying to convey to the jury? The notion, so simple a child could understand it, is frankly a phrase I've heard. And, and uh, believe it or not, Mr. Slisher is a pretty good uh, church-going fellow himself. And so we had heard phrases like, so simple a child could understand and I said, here, a child did understand this. Uh, it, it is just common sense. Get off of him, said the little girl. And that to me is, is what it really comes down to. You can muddy it up and try to complicate it with all the arguments about tailpipes and all the rest. But come on, the man didn't have a pulse. You're an officer who took an oath to protect and serve the people. You are clearly abusing this man in four and a half minutes after he's dead and take the position that, you stayed on him like that because he may have come back to life, broken the handcuffs and rampaged the city. That's a horror movie. That's not a human that <laughs> that happens with. That in Halloween, you know, Freddy Krueger does that. I think it was sort of calling that out in the most decent way that we could, that this was really just common sense. It's so simple a child could understand it. In fact, a child did understand it. What did you learn from doing this trial? A few things I learned from doing this trial, and I haven't mentioned this person's name in our talking, but I have to. I think Steve would agree here too. The attorney general for the state of Minnesota is extraordinary. I mean, people really don't necessarily know, A, how hands-on he was and running the team meetings and making all the judgment calls. It took a lot of courage, BD. So my hat was off to him for the courage that he undertook in pursuing this. I learned a lot about my own self in this. I can't describe it other than I think probably in every person, there's somewhere hidden in your DNA coding, a set of circumstances in life that just get activated and you just start to march in a certain direction. You can't even control yourself. Didn't even know it was in you. This trial was that for me. I mean, uh, volunteering, standing up for it at whatever the personal cost to me. I don't mean to be overly dramatic. That really was the truth at whatever the cost. I didn't know that was there. I learned it. And I just learned a lot about the decency amongst practitioners in the bar here in Minnesota. I mean, people like Steve and others who also heard the call and who, um, man, they, they lost sleep. They put themselves on the line. Uh, the truth be told, I mean, all of us were marshalling around with various types of security because it wasn't necessarily physically safe to do it. I learned a lot about the, the decency of other members here of our bar which to me I love, um, and friends I have for my lifetime. And I learned some about advocacy. You know, I'd never been in a criminal case before. And I can tell you more than once, the criminal practitioner's like, oh my God, he's gone in the cockpit again. You know, <laughs> somebody get in there quick. <laughs> this is gonna be the end today. <laughs> and I said, no, I'm flying this plane, move, move. 
And so I did learn as a trial lawyers, you always say you can try any kind of case. There's no such thing as a criminal jury, a civil jury, an antitrust jury. It's just a jury. And I learned it is possible, but it's a challenge. I mean, there was quite a bit of scrubbing and nipping and tucking the team had to do to get me into form <laughs> to not get up and say things uh, that would uh, per se cause uh, error in reversal as a, as a civil lawyer. But, uh, but it was doable, and I appreciated that very much from the team. I learned those things, and I learned about the humanity overarching that unites kind of all of us. I heard from people from all over the world. And apart from all of the issues we have about sort of political points of view, genders, ideologies, uh, nationhoods, there was a, a fundamental humanity that just united people from all over. I mean, you, you name it, from China to Turkey to Peru to Jamaica, I heard from all over the world people who resonated with this fundamental humanity that was on display and at issue in this trial. Steve, what do you think that you learned from this trial then? I learned, again, to trust others, to value the input of others. It's important to step outside of your own thought bubble and to receive input, not only uh, from other attorneys, uh, but other people. I think that you need to do that in order to be effective. We talk about the team. We had a diverse team as well, racially, uh, gender. And I think that as a product of all of us really caring about the case and having diverse viewpoints and coming at the discipline from different angles, we have a much better product than if we're in our own echo chamber. I also learned something about advocacy that you're not going to like to hear, and maybe um, neither will any other advocate. And what is that? <laughs> that as advocates, we believe that we can convince people of anything, anyone, right? And in this case, maybe, you know, sadly, you can't. It kind of goes to jury selection there. Uh, you know your audience, <laughs> pick your audience, pick your audience carefully. Because there are those people who, because of a mindset, a pre-ordained set of beliefs, are just not going to be receptive to your message at all. And I think that whether it was the last uh, election cycle here in the United States, uh, frankly, you see this happening all over the world. And in this case, there were some people on either end who come to the courthouse with a certain mindset that they are not going to be receptive to advocacy. But what they are going to do is they're going to take in any information that supports the view they already have, and they're going to reject out of hand any evidence to the contrary. And I learned that, and I learned, I think, a little bit on how to do my best to identify those people so that we can get to uh, the heartland of people who can be persuaded one way or the other. That's a tough thing because you would, you would like to think in a jury selection approach. How many times uh, as advocates you hear, well, advocacy starts at jury selection. You have to feed them your theory of the case. I've done that a lot um, over my career. I don't know how effective it is, uh, to be honest with you. There's a lot that happens between jury selection and the closing. They forget a lot of that. If you spend all your time um, listening to yourself talk and feeding them your theory of the case and not listening to their answer, 
and trying to recognize, okay, we have some trouble here. This is a person based on the language they're using, based on uh, maybe some of their mannerisms, you can tell where they're going to fit and getting rid of those people. Uh, you miss an opportunity. Sometimes what you should do is undersell your case in jury selection. Maybe throw it a little bit, throw your opponent a few bones and see how quickly you get some of those jurors to agree with that proposition. Right. And, and then you know, okay, I'm going to have some trouble with that. I do talk about mannerisms. Uh, it, it shouldn't be this way, but uh, for one reason or another, coronavirus has become somewhat politicized and you can tell where somebody is going to fall on the political spectrum based on how they feel about uh, some of the precautions that were taken. So it, it may have been lost on someone why with some of the jurors, I would just make conversation and say, oh, do you feel protected here? Do you think um, we've taken appropriate precautions? If they say something like these precautions are ridiculous, I know where they sit. That's going to be highly predictive of some other views that they might have that might uh, cause me some problems. If the judge says you may remove your mask and they do it very gently and set it down, um, that says something. If they rip it off and toss it and they're so uh, happy about that, um, that might say something else. They're clues, they're things that you listen for. I learned to pick that up. I've learned to maybe not unfriend or stop listening to news sources that I disagree with or people because they talk to each other using a certain code. They use a lot of the same phrases and words. And then when you hear those same phrases repeated in conversation, because they just come out, it gives you a clue as to what sites they're visiting. And what sites they're visiting uh, is very predictive of what views they may have. And that can tell you whether or not this is a juror you can live with or one you might want to think about cutting. Sure. That's so interesting and so much to learn. I hadn't even thought about picking up on those cues and, and letting that feed my case and my case analysis. What are your three practical tips for listeners to improve their advocacy? The first, of course, is preparation. And not just preparation at the surface level, but preparation with every sensory tool that you have. You need to read it, you need to look at it, and you need to talk about it. You need to teach it. You need to engage with your colleagues and run these things past each other. Because litigation is a team sport. Advocacy is a team sport. If you do things on your own all the time and don't open yourself up to criticism, you have to have skin like a rhino, right? You have to be able to put it out there and accept the criticism. That's part of the preparation. I think to me, that's uh, first and foremost, because however you speak, whatever comes up, whatever someone throws at you, if you have the knowledge, if you've absorbed it and you've made yourself practice uh, how to explain it, you're going to be able to pivot and you're going to be able to react. I think the other uh, tip I would give uh, anyone in improving the advocacy is, again, you have to be genuine. You have to be yourself. And uh, there's some things that attorneys do, maybe a, a more bombastic style that if I tried doing, I would just look silly. It wouldn't be able to do it. wouldn't be able to pull it off. In, in order to convey a level of sincerity and, and build that trust so that the jury trusts you when you tell them that the correct answer to the question they're being asked is the one you want them to give, you really do have to be yourself. You have to be earnest and you have to be genuine. I think the third practical tip I would give anyone 
is that you can't be afraid. You spend a lot of time as a junior advocate when you first start out being afraid. You're afraid of the judge. You're afraid you're going to make a mistake. You're afraid that you're going to let someone down. You're afraid that you're going to lose the case for the victim or that this uh, team who brought you uh, the evidence, if, uh, if it's an investigation or whatnot, that you're going to let them down. Or that you're going to embarrass yourself, right? Isn't that everyone's big fear? That That's why people fear public speaking. They fear that they're going to be embarrassed. But we've all been embarrassed in court, in public. And it's terrible, right? But it's not that terrible. It's kind of like getting punched in the face. You always avoid, uh, you, you want to avoid it, right? But the worst thing that can happen to you from getting punched in the face is that it stings for a little while, and then it doesn't. Okay, and so when you've been beat up in court a few times, if you've had the experience of having a judge be horrible to you in front of a whole group of people, Mr. Slisher, that is by far, in my 30 years on the bench, the single dumbest thing I've ever heard anyone say in court. Congratulations, you've uh, achieved a new level, right, to, to hear that. And it's awful, and you go back and you lick your wounds, um, but you know what? It's over. It goes away. And you get to come back and you get to fight back. And I think that, you know, being afraid of losing means that you're not going to take a risk. Being afraid of looking silly, being afraid of getting crossed with someone means that you're not going to take a chance. And you just really need to put yourself out there. The worst thing that can happen is that you get a little bit embarrassed, but you're going to be fine. You're going to be just fine. And, and the only one thing that I, I will add, uh, uh, Quickly to the excellent point Steve uh, made for any trial advocate is just to learn and to always remember uh, the basis on which jurors make decisions. Uh, they overwhelmingly make decisions first and foremost on an emotional level. It is first what I call the politics of the belly, the gut sense of kind of right or wrong. Lawyers oftentimes fall into the trap of focusing unduly on the analytic first. People first decide how they feel about uh, the case and the merits. Then they want to hear the analytics uh, to see from that what will they pick and choose to support how they feel. I don't view jury selection as just jury selection. I call it lawyer selection because the jurors are deciding which lawyer they're going to first trust to walk them through the evidence. It's lawyer selection. In the opening statement They've been told to keep an open mind until you've heard all the evidence. That's counted to human nature, even if you try to. Um, and uh, you start forming opinions immediately. And for the most part, if you get out of the box early, you have a, a case that appeals to the belly on jurors and then to the mind. If your evidence comes in the way that you say it's going to, nine times out of ten, the jurors end up exactly where they started uh, after the jury selection and opening statement. That's how kind of important that is. It's just that, to frame your case around uh, the, the humanity of the jurors and, uh, and, and how it is they really uh, make uh, decisions. And, uh, and, and jurors do not quite often think the way lawyers do. Lawyers are, tend to be overly analytical uh, in, in driving how they make decisions. The analytics important, but I think it, it follows uh, the uh, the fundamental gut sense of what's right and what's wrong, the emotional case for jurors. Our conversation concludes here. I hope you found it as riveting and helpful as I did. And a huge thank you to Jerry and Steve 
for taking the time to appear on the Advocacy Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Advocacy Podcast, Journeys to Excellence. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe and visit us at theadvocacypodcast.com for reading lists and other resources. Until next time.